You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Alrighty. So I decided to take a little bit of a chip out of Victoria's notebook here this week. And Uh-oh. I'm going to be doing... I'm trying to think what that means. It's a You're little more... everyone nightmares? Well, I mean, only always. But the one that I, the topic that I'm going to be doing this week is a little complicated. But stay with me, okay. and we are going to have a whale of a time. All right? Oh, God. <laughs> she's, she's being punny. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, I can't guarantee that there are no other puns. Um, so to get started on this, So about 250 million years ago or so, the first tetrapod emerged out from the water. Okay, it's four-footed. It is a four-legged animal coming out of the water, and it stayed on land. Now, I want you both give me a guess. What do you think the wit is the whales or cetaceans' closest living relative? Uh like okay it's gonna be a it's gonna be a land animal i'm gonna guess yeah it's a land animal like a it's gonna be something or an elephant uh, or i wanted to say giraffe at first but i bet it's gonna be something really surprising or like a, a dog <laughs> I, I, I was thinking like a mouse or uh i bet it's i bet it's Oh. All right, what, what do you got? The closest living relative, um, and their closest living relative is the hippopotamus. No! Oh! oh you <laughs> oh. I am not joking. I, I, t- I, t- I, uh, listeners, <laughs> we do not discuss beforehand no. what our topics are. Uh-uh. Rachel, do you want to take Uh-oh. one guess what my topic is this week? Is it a hippopotamus? It has to do with a hippopotamus. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> oh man. Now, oh, go on. <laughs> so, I am all ears. Okay, oh. so the split with or the common ancestor, that common ancestor with cetaceans and hippos, that was about 56 million years ago, okay? Okay, okay, mm-hmm. yeah. All right, so just a short so little time. We're talking uh, 10 million years after the dinosaurs right. were wiped out. So at this point in time, the most re- that common ancestor between hippos and whales, uh, about 56 million years, it is um, 200 million years descended from that very first tetrapod that crawled out of the water and started making its life on land, okay? Sure, sure. Um, gross simplification of that entire process. Okay. Absolutely. 
Uh, this common ancestor was a four-legged, hoofed land animal, an even-toed ungulate. Okay. Like a horse. Like a horse. Or a cow. Or a giraffe, actually. Um, it had, generally speaking, they had large skulls with large carnivorous teeth. Uh, and they don't look a lot like whales. Uh, but the skulls actually tell a very different story. Because when you look at a whale skull, uh, around where it gets its hearing, it has this um, bony wall around its ear. And that is a telltale sign of a cetacean or a whale uh, also like dolphins but they're part of the cetacean family uh -huh. um, and that is not found in any other mammal species so that's how we know that that is a whale ancestor okay oh, okay gotcha yep so we keep going further down the train about down the train down the chain Next well, stop, well. the next, woohoo, uh, the next common ancestor spent more time in the water. So we're, the idea is that they started having more of an aquatic lifestyle about 49 million years ago. So that split. When you say the next common ancestor, what do you, um, common to what, like Nothing that's alive anymore. So there's a number of splits along the evolutionary train that the animals that split off no longer exist. Okay? Oh, so this is just a stop on the train. It's this is the just fact a stop on the train. There's nothing else common to it from that stop anymore. Exactly. Okay, okay, go on. Thank All right. You. So anytime. Um, so we keep going down, and about 49 million years ago, what, this common ancestor started having more aquatic lifestyle than others of its species. It spent more time near the edges of the water and like brackish water. And the way we like can, a hippo, uh, sort of like a hippo, but not quite okay. a hippo. We're past hippos at this point. No, I know, I know. Um, but kind of. Uh, they were just getting more success along the edges. And they were able to hide better in the shallow water from predators. So it drove evolution, or it drove, uh, they had more success reproductively. Let's see if I can figure this out. Yeah, there was, there was selective pressure. For, there was selective for, pressure. Because they were in the water. To yeah. be in the water more than the animals that stayed on land for. They got eaten more, so yeah. thus they didn't have it was work. It was working for them. Exactly. Um, about, about that same time, echolocation began to develop just slightly so they're spending more time in their wa in the water they're more or less an amphibious uh type not quite actual like amphibian like a salamander but like spending yeah. more time in the water and on land but they start developing this muscle this fatty tissue to help with um to develop that actually leads it up into echolocation okay okay um, so, because these ancestors were more success, reproductively successful in the water, being able to hide and such and having more food, it drove the evolution that for them to be able to swim better, more or less. Not a great way to say it, but I'm trying to simplify it for listeners. Um, 
Archaeocetes, Archaeocetes, Latin, uh, became fully aquatic 44 to 39 million years ago. All right. right? Uh, this particular common ancestor, way, way back when, uh, we found in the fossil record, it still has that bony wall around the ear. It still has visible legs, has a very large, powerful tail, but it has shorter legs. So as they're in the water, the legs are beginning to get, or longer and longer, the legs are getting shorter. Now this is over millions of years that this change is happening. Once okay. they're in the water, these animals kept evolving with the nasal opening shifting from the front snout area where you see like a hippo further and further back so that way they could keep swimming but still be able to access air while maintaining being underneath the water. Sure, that makes perfect sense. Right. Um, their eyes are now on the side of the head to be able to see all around them. Uh, they About 43 million years ago, they gained tail flukes, uh, which is the separation like of the two tail flippers for our listeners here. Um, they get flippers, or they develop flippers rather than forelimbs, making it easier for them to swim. Um, they don't develop them, the, the pressure. Anyway, uh, that's about 35 million years ago. And uh, they keep getting smaller and smaller hind legs all the way through 34 million years ago. One ancestor, the, and I'm not joking, the Basilosaurus was the key for discovering the connection between whales and their terrestrial ancestors. Before this, it, scientists didn't know that whales pretty much came from water, went back on land, went on land, went back in the water, okay? And, and this was went, this was because of the Oregonosaurus? The Basilosaurus. Oh, Basilosaurus, thank you. <laughs> and they were, they did what, what exactly? Um, so they originally thought it was a dinosaur, but then they were looking at the skull and the, the vertebrae, and they noticed that it looked a lot like a whale skull. And that the way that the vertebrates, uh, the vertebrae moved or like seemed to be able to like the wear and tear, it looked more like a whale rather than a reptile or a fish. Uh, so they were able to make the connection that this was a, uh, this is a whale ancestor. So it's a mammal. And, and this, is of, a, this is aquatic. This, and that it's aquatic. So but they were able to see those hind legs and uh, be able to find the ancestors before it. They thought it was a reptile at first, which is why they named it whatever a source. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. It was a <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> um, awesome. So going further down the evolutionary time frame, this is still at 34 million years ago. Some of the species of whale began to eat or be more successful and have more. Uh, they had more reproductive success and everything being able to survive by eating plankton and gradually the teeth of these animals start to become baleen. So this is the divergence of tooth whales and baleen whales. Um, this evolution happened over a little more than 8 million years. 
and it's just insane because they came in, they came out, and now they're back in the water. Um, um, so I have the question of why are whales so big? And I'm almost done. It's mostly because uh, the bigger you are, the more heat you produce, and thus it's easier to maintain heat when you're really, really big. And gravity isn't as much of a factor when you're in water, so it's not weighing you down as much. There's limitations uh, on land for how big mammals can get just based on blood vessels and how big those blood vessels can be and how big bones can get, which is why elephants kind of have topped off how big they can get, but then you look at a blue whale and it's the largest animal we've ever had on the planet. Like in the history of the earth, the blue whale is the biggest animal we've ever had. And we live in the time of the blue whale, which is so cool. Um, part of that, uh, and the reason why they're able to get that big is there isn't a ton of predation happening on baleen whales. They're just so large, there's not anything really that can eat them anymore, or at least like when they're a full-grown adult. Um, part of it too is the megalodon doesn't exist anymore, so there's not that pressure to stay small. There is some solid evidence between prey getting smaller as their predator eats more and more of the bigger ones because they're easier to catch than the really small oh, ones. Oh, interesting, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, the megalodon was at the giant shark. That was the yep. giant shark that people think that yep. is still around, okay. but because of how whales are, it's small. Um, and that's what I have for you today, actually. History of whales. And there awesome, thanks. Uh, we're going to take a break, and when we get back, it'll be Victoria. If you're listening to this podcast, you are at least a little strange by nature, just like us. Why not make it official? We're happy to announce the launching of our Patreon program, and it's called The Society of Strange. You can join today. You may have noticed we've been experimenting with not having ads on the show lately, and it has been great. But while we're not doing this for the money, doing a podcast like this can get expensive. We have web hosting fees, there's audio hosting fees, equipment fees, it all really adds up. By joining the Society of Strange, you can help us sustain the show and get some perks as well. All Society of Strange members get one of our swanky new water bottle stickers, and at higher levels of support, you can get secret bonus content and even our studio voicemail number. Oh, yes. Excellent. You can check it all out at patreon.com slash strangebynature. All right. Hey, everybody. We're back. I'm going to tell you a story about a woman named Yana Eglett. Uh, she is a graduate student in biology at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is in Canada. Amazing. And in 2016, in the spring, um, she went for a hike with some friends in Nova Scotia. And as she sometimes does on hikes, she stopped at one point to collect a small amount of soil into a little tube that she carries with her. And sure, that she caught up with her friends. Yeah. When she got back to the lab, she wetted down the sample and waited to see what might grow. Oh, cool. Yeah. So um, she would check it under the microscope every so often. And about a month later, she was looking one day and she noticed something really strange. Okay. Now, this is, this is where I'm going to leave you slightly in suspense. And before I get back to what she found, I need to talk a little bit about protists. 
That's so mean, Victoria. I want to know what did she find? All right, quick, quick, tell us about protists. All right, protists. Well, you may remember that this is somewhat vaguely from biology class, listeners, but first of all, Rachel, it was so helpful of you to talk about the tree of life earlier. The tree of life is divided into two big trunks, um, the prokaryotes and the eukaryotes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so oh, which I talked about in a previous episode. Perfect. Yes. yes, prokaryotes are basically bacteria and archaea, and they are teeny, 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 tiny single-celled organisms that do not have a nucleus in their cell. So they don't have, they don't have chromosomes. All their DNA is just kind of hanging out in the middle of the cell, and it doesn't have a nucleus. And no mitochondria. Right. No mitochondria either. Um, no, no membrane-bound organelles. There are lots of other differences, too, but the, the nucleus is kind of the simplest one to talk about. Yep. So eukaryotes, on the other hand have a nucleus in their in their cells and this group includes everything else that is alive except for bacteria and archaea so eukaryotes include the kingdoms of the fungi the plants the animals and the protists okay so fungi animals and plants are are well-defined groups you have to meet specific criteria to be admitted into those clubs Uh i think most people kind of have a picture of what those are yeah Club animal here. Yeah. Protist, though, is basically just like a catch-all term for any eukaryotic organism that doesn't belong to one of the other three groups. So in some ways, that's almost meaningless as a category because it's so incredibly diverse and these, these things have nothing in common, pretty much. Other than it's just kind of a dumping ground for eh, not this stuff. Yeah. Something else. It's the like human junk drawer in your kitchen. Yeah, basically, basically. <laughs> the evolutionary junk drawer. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, love it. That may be the title of the episode. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> um, we humans, we love to put things into categories, and it is a lot easier to remember a list of four kingdoms of eukaryotes than 17 or whatever it is, actually. Right. Um, and... Also, we used to just classify things based on their structures, but with modern genetic analysis, that's thrown a lot of that out of the window. So things right. that used to be grouped together turn out not to be closely related at all. So it's all very confusing, but Yana Eglet's research was focused on finding new types of protests. So okay. that's why she goes around collecting s- soil samples. And okay, I thought it was a weird. <laughs> not just random. Um, so on this dirt that she picked up on her hiking hiking trip, she found a doozy. So she was looking this day, she noticed there was this long, kind of elongated cell that had lots of little wiggly flagella all over its body and didn't look like anything um, kind of usual. And looking, so she put it under higher magnification on the microscope and she recognized it as this mysterious protist that's called a hemimastigote. Now, hemimastigotes, yeah, they had been described in the scientific literature in the late 1980s, but they're incredibly difficult to grow in a lab, and so they had never been DNA sequenced, so people just, like, kind of knew what it looked like, but they didn't know anything about it, and there were guesses all over the map as to what group of the protest, what branch of the protest it really belonged to. Uh All right. But... Eglet was able to isolate this hemimastigote and use a new technique um, that's called single single cell transcriptomics, and that's the researcher use uh, 
a single cell to sequence large numbers of genes from that one specimen. Wow. Which is pretty amazing. Um, so when she's we did a grad this, student? She's a grad student. And so cool. obviously she's working together now with her, with her lab group and um, supervisor and everything. But to everyone's shock, this hemimastigote is completely unrelated to any other member of the eukaryotes. It is a eukaryote, oh, wow. it's not a prokaryote, but it is so different that the research, the researchers suggest in their paper that it be placed in its own, what they're calling a supra-kingdom. So basically it branched off from other forms of life more than a billion, with a B, <laughs> billion years ago. Oh, <laughs> oh man. Whoa. And in fact, Eglet and her colleagues found not one, but two species of hemimastodotes oh. in this one soil sample. What? Nice. Just, just scoop it, and all of a sudden you got two. What? Yeah. So, so then, I want to back up and, and for a second just to clarify. So it's it's neither a prokaryote nor a eukaryote? No, it is a eukaryote. Is it is a eukaryote, okay. It doesn't but it's belong. sort of its own branch. Yeah, it's not. it doesn't belong to any of the phyla of protests that already so, exist. So it, to go back to the tree analogy, so you have like the main base of the trunk and it splits off into two giant, all pretty much its own tree, but all connected at the base. And there's a and little then, tiny leaf sticking off right at the bottom. Uh, no, so if, the two, if the two trunks of the tree are the prokaryotes and the eukaryotes, it's, yep. a, it's like a branch that goes off. It's like a main branch. Trunk, but pretty close to the ground. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's the eukaryote branch, and that branches into four, and mm-hmm. that because there's the protists, the fungi, the mammals, and the plants. Yeah. But this branches off before all that. Yeah. Oh. But the okay. protist branch is like a fake branch anyway, as we discussed, because oh, it's really a whole bunch of other branches. That's right. But the real okay. question here. The real question here is if, if one random soil sample from Nova Scotia can uh-huh. yield this new limb of the tree just because the right person happened to be looking at it, what uh-huh. else is out there that we have no idea about? Yep. Life is so much more look. complicated and diverse than we can comprehend. It's horrifying. It's, it's so amazing. Horrifyingly awesome. I mean, I, I, this is not the, to- the same example, but when I, I used to work at a nature center where we did a bioblitz, Mm-hmm. We try to identify as many different uh, species as possible in one 24-hour period. And one of the guys we got to come out happened to be a diatom researcher. Like cool. one, one of the world's leading experts in diatoms. And so he spent the so day cool. just scooping pond samples and looking at what he found. And during the BioBlitz, he discovered a brand new species <laughs> of diatom. That's amazing. And he knows because he's like the guy who does it. Um, <laughs> and it was from an unknown genus, but he's like, oh, yeah, this is this is a new species. And he ended up naming it after the Nature Center. That's uh, so cool. But so again, cool. it's almost like everywhere you look, the, when you're studying something that hasn't been studied that closely, the potential, you know, is good to find something new. That's what we tell, tell kids or interested yeah. stuff. It's like if you want to find new species, you know, don't go into mammals and birds. Or reptiles, or amphibians. You know, it's like if you really want to find the new stuff, it's like grab a microscope. Mm-hmm. Totally. Or a bug net. Yeah. 
Well, I want to um, give a shout out to uh, the article that provided the backbone of this story, which is by Jonathan Lambert uh, from Quanta Magazine in December of 2018. So check that article out. It's really uh, interesting. I'll give you some more details on it. That's what I have this week. Thanks, when Victoria. We, yeah, totally. Um, when we come back from the break, it's going to be Kirk. All right, uh, we're back, and I, I know you're wondering. Uh, I'm so excited, what's up with Kirk. Lipos, right? <laughs> I kind of yeah. gave it away. Um, I saw my my story this week actually starts with a meme. Uh, yes. I saw a meme a meme the other day, and it had a picture of a hippo. Actually, a picture of a guy riding on a hippopotamus. That sounds like a bad idea. Well, probably when it, it was accompanied with the following text. It simply said, back in 2005, a South African man named uh, Marius Els adopted a baby hippo after oh rescuing God. it from a river. Oof. Six years later, after years of bonding between the two, the hippo dragged him into that same river and ate him. Yep, sounds about right. Mm-hmm. Sounds about right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rescued a baby animal in Africa right there. Yeah, this little, juicy, this little juicy morsel uh, has gone viral several times. Uh, different uh, sites and different uh, people different uh, have retweeted it or reposted it. And it wait, wait, wait. Hang on a second. Yeah. I'm hippos vegetarians. Oh, look at that. Let's, let's talk about that. Because what I was just going to say is whenever this gets posted oh. online... Uh, on places like right. Twitter, the comment section always goes nuts with people saying that it couldn't possibly be true because hippos are vegetarians, right? Or a more scientific mm-hmm. way we might say that they would be herbivores and right. not right. carnivores, right? So mm-hmm. even the laziest amount of Googling uh, will reveal that this story is not at all what it seems. Right. So yes, a man named Marius Els did have a hippo living on his ranch in South Africa. How he got it wasn't exactly that he rescued it from a river, but that's not super important. Um, he loved it. Uh, it was like he considered it to be like his best friend. He thought hippos had a really bad rap for being aggressive. Um, by they some are. accounts, he... <laughs> they are. By some <laughs> accounts, he treated the hippo like his baby, and he would ride around on it, which apparently his wife was not happy about. Um, <laughs> it is also true that in 2005... The same man was found dead in the river, having been killed by the hippo. What is not true, though, is that he was eaten, right? Because, they, see, what happened was the hippo attacked him, mm-hmm. and it probably bit him, you know, as part of that attack. Uh, they've got those amazing mouthful, those, you know, chompers and whatnot, and it would be horrible to be bit by one, and you can very much die from that. Um, but, you know... As many people will point out, hippos are herbivores and would never eat a human, right? Mm-hmm. So it seems like the story ends there. But of course, the name of the podcast is Strange, Strange by, by, nature. by Nature. And while the story of a hand-raised hippo attacking a person who raised it is a bit strange, I found something even weirder uh, on my adventures down the great click hole that is the internet. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Turns out... All those people in the comments yelling in all caps that hippos are vegetarians and that's why the story must be false. Well, turns out they may not be as right as they think they are. Mm. Enter Dr. Joseph P. Dudley of the University of Alaska into our story. And I know 
University of Alaska. So yeah. It's a really strange, strange place like double for uh, a scientist who's into hippos. But uh, hey, I, I, I promise that. I promise the story got weirder, so here we go. He's uh, thinking Dr. of Dudley, weather. Yeah, uh, has been looking at the question of whether or not hippos eat meat for uh, the last two decades. Uh, back in 1995, Dr. Dudley observed hippos eating meat at uh, Hwange National Park in Zimbabwe. Okay. Uh, this set him on a mission to find other examples. And so what has he seen these so-called you know, vegetarians eat? Well... Uh, Dr. Dudley has collected evidence of hippos eating impala, uh, uh, kudus, wildebeest, zebras, Uh baby elephants, yeah, and even other hippos. That's right. Cannibalism! Yay! Yay! Cannibalism! Uh, that's we're gonna make a T-shirt that it says "Yay cannibalism" with a picture of Rachel <laughs> or something. There we go. Uh, t- that could be t- the title of the episode too. There mm-hmm. you go. We got so many choices. Uh, to be clear, uh, herbivores do sometimes eat animal meat, right? Like I've personally witnessed a white-tailed deer pick up a baby bird off the ground, like a fledgling, and just eat it whole. Okay. Yeah, I've I've heard I, when I first heard about deer eating little baby birds or. Um, mice if they can get them it yep. blew my mind but yeah it does happen yeah I mean, these things do happen yeah i mean i know squirrels will chew on bones and mice will chew on bones and things too for like calcium and teeth wear which is not the same thing but uh it's not the same thing but it does show that they are trying to get um something in their diet that is missing Right. Like calcium you mentioned, and that is basically when a lot of this we can see some of this happening with herbivores eating meat is when there's something missing in their diet, and they're trying to make up a deficiency. Or especially, I've heard it said like after an animal gives birth and they have very high dietary needs, right. they might sometimes ingest a little bit of meat. Um, so the relevant question here is: Is this what was happening with the hippos? Right. Yeah. So. In a paper that appeared in the journal Mammal Review, uh, Dudley argues that it is so common to see hippos eating meat that we really shouldn't probably even think of them uh, or think of this as a rare event involving a starving animal because it's not necessarily the starving ones that are doing this. Eating meat really does seem to be part of their regular diet. So they're yeah, I mean, they've been observed eating meat when other food is scarce, yes, but they've also been observed eating meat when food is plentiful. So they seem to be more of an opportunistic eater. I think mm-hmm. perhaps the best example showing this, um, that it's not something that they, um, that they're not necessarily starving when they do this, is that this behavior has been observed, <laughs> this is terrible, has been observed multiple times in zoos, mm. where the hippos eat other animals in the zoo. Uh, oh, yeah, there's recording. I would hate to be that keeper. Uh, right, eating tapirs, uh, <gasps> wa- wallabies, <gasps> flamingos, <gasps> and once again, other hippos. <laughs> so, yeah, oh, we boy. should perhaps cons- reconsider whether the term herbivore really applies or whether we should call them uh, omnivores. So, mm-hmm. in this case of the meme, uh, it is incorrect that uh, this guy was not eaten by his pet hippo. But it's not actually out of the realm of possibility, which is certainly strange. Yeah, if you can eat a wildebeest or a baby elephant, you can certainly eat something the size of a human. Yep, snack snack on some humans, exactly. 
Uh, I think the Let's reason why. Back. Yeah, the reason why. Big <laughs> tall. <laughs> Sorry, wow. I had to. Uh, honestly, I think uh, also the reason this wasn't probably um, as known about earlier is that they do most their a lot of their eating at night, um, okay. and so it's a, their feeding habits are a little harder to study. But now that we're studying them more, we're finding out about stuff that we didn't realize they ate. Fascinating. Fascinating. Makes them okay. even more horrifying than they already were. Horrifyingly awesome. So cool. Well, that those those three topics just slotted together so neatly. Good work, oh, team. So nice. Beautiful. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Thanks. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.